We are in 1 John chapter 5 today, completing, as Pastor Ron mentioned already, our series in 1 John. I hope it's been good for you to review uh, 1 John. Uh, even the whole book of 1 John, as I said earlier in the series, the whole book of 1 John is a review of what Jesus had taught. John wanted to review the commandments that Jesus had taught, and so this book is really the, the last teachings of Jesus right before his crucifixion. John is reminding us of those things, of the commands and the teachings that Jesus had given. As I've mentioned already, John has three purposes in writing. He, he says he wants our joy to be complete. He wants, us, he wants us so that we may not sin, and he wants us to know that we have eternal life. Those are the three, writing, three, three purposes that he writes in 1 John. He wants us to know joy, he wants us to know holiness, and he wants us to know assurance. And my hope as we've gone through this series is that is that, that has been true for you, that you have begun to see the joy that comes through our salvation, that you have begun to see the holiness that he calls us to and that he works in us, and that you have begun to see and know the assurance that you can have of eternal life through Jesus. John, as I mentioned, and again, it's important again this morning as we look at chapter 5, John was, was up against an early form of Gnosticism. There were teachers and, and leaders in the church who were saying that Jesus Christ could not have been 100% man and 100% God at the same time. And so they had different, different ideas, different concoctions, really, uh, trying, to fit, trying to fit a perfect God into an imperfect human. And they said there was no way that that could happen, and so they had different ideas, and we talked about that earlier in the series. But again, today, John comes back to those same ideas because he wants everyone to know that Jesus, he was there. Remember, that was his response when we looked at chapter 1. John's response was, I was there. I've, I've heard him with my own ears. I've seen him with my own eyes. I have studied him. I have touched him. I know Jesus, and he was, in fact, God and man both together. And so John wants everyone to know exactly who Jesus is. He gives us some tests so that we might be assured of our salvation, so that we might have assurance of our faith. He says there's a moral test of righteousness. The idea that when we, when we know him and when we love him, we have a desire to keep his commands. And if you don't have a desire to keep his commands, you may not love him. You may not have him at work in you. The second was, was that we want to have the social test of love, that we want to love one another. In fact, John over and over says there's this new commandment that Jesus shares, our new commandment that I give to you, love one another. And that if we don't love our brother, if we don't love, if we don't love those around us, we do not have the love of God at work in us. And the doctrinal test of truth, that, we have, that our attitude and our acceptance of truth, particularly about Jesus and about his incarnation, shows our conversion. Last week in 1 John chapter 4, we talked about God's love. And I told you the story that we get from history that, that John went to the early church. They, they carried him in, if you remember that from last week. They carried him in. He's at the very end of his life. Everyone is there with bated breath, waiting, anticipating. What will John teach us here at the very end? What's the most important thing? The last words that he wants to give to the church. And John's entire message according to history, church history, is that his entire message is God is love, love one another. But that's it. 
John is the apostle of love, and that's his teaching. And last week, I, I have a couple of quotes that I just want to re-share with you about God's love for us. I've been stewing on them all week, thinking about them all week. One of the quotes was from John Stott. He says that God showed his love for us in this, is what John says. John Stott says, It is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiation, and God himself, who in the person of his son, died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus, God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it on his own self in his own son when he took our place and died for us. That's our hope. That's the glory of the gospel, that God saves us from God. That God took the first step, that God made all the arrangements, that God finished the work, and then God applied it to us. And we can have hope because of that. I shared then at the end of 1 John chapter 4, again last week, that we can have assurance of our faith. We can have assurance because because God loved us in the past, way back here, before, before we even knew him, before we even knew that we needed a rescuer, before we even knew, before we even wanted help. God sent his son in the past and we have assurance because we can see that God loved us here and we can have assurance because right here in the present, God loves us now. He sends sends the spirit to work inside of us to make us more and more to perfect the love that he has put inside of us. So we have assurance of our faith because of the Holy Spirit that's worked in us in the present, John says. And then we have assurance in the future because John tells us that what he is, we will be that we will be like Jesus. We will be children of the king. We will be heirs with Christ. We will be like him in the future. We have assurance of our faith because God loved us way back there. He's working in us now, and he has promised that in the future we will be like Jesus. And so he wraps it up here in chapter 5. He says, reading from verse 1 in chapter 5 of 1 John, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and when we obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Again, this is the test that John's been talking about. If you Love God, you will obey. We seek to please the one that we love, and so we will obey his commandments. But then, John says, if you love God, you will obey his commandments. You'll keep his commandments. And then he says this in verse 3. He says, and his commandments, talking about God's commandments, his commandments are not burdensome. Are not burdensome. doesn't feel that way all the time, does it? That his commandments are not burdensome? As you read through 1 John, if, if, if you've looked back at it, you, you know there's all kinds of commands that, that he gives to us. And John, John goes so far as to say, if you're not following this command, you are not in the Son. If you are not following the commands of God, you are not, 
you are not a believer. Those commands, they're heavy. And there's a weight behind the commands of God. And in fact, Paul tells us that as we look back, the laws is there, is there to put a burden on us, to drive us towards the Savior. And yet John says here that they're not burdensome. It seems at time that the crushing weight of the commandments of God are way more, way more than we can handle. And yet what John is telling us right here is exactly what we find in the rest of Scripture. Let me just read to you some of the Psalms. How happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of sinners or join a group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. I delight to do your will, O God. Your instruction lives within me. Hallelujah. Happy is the man who fears the Lord and taking great delight in his commandments. I rejoice in the way revealed by your decrees as much as in all riches. I delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Your decrees are my delight and my counselors. Help me to stay on the path of your commands for I take pleasure in it. I delight in your commands which I love. Our hearts are hard and insensitive, but I delight in your instruction. May your compassion come to me so that I may live, for your instruction is my delight. Trouble and distress have overtaken me, but your commands are my delight. I long for your salvation, Lord, for your instruction is my delight. Do you hear it? The same word repeated over and over The psalmist says that God's commandments and his instruction to us, that his law is our delight. It's our delight. We use the illustration several times. You probably all have heard it. But the illustration of duty and delight that that I like to use, that Pastor Ron has used it as well, is that if I were to go to the store and, and pick up a vase and put some flowers in it, and bring it home to my wife, and I hand her these flowers, and, I say to, and, and, and she says to me, these flowers are beautiful. Thank you. And I say, Jenny, you're welcome. It was my duty to bring you these flowers. That is not going to go over very well. That is not going to be well received if it is my duty to bring her this gift. It says all kinds of things about the love that I'm bringing and it says all kinds, to her, all kinds of things to her about how she would receive that gift. But if I do the same thing, if I go to the store and I pick out a vase and I put pretty flowers in it and I bring it to Jenny and I, I hand it to her and she says, she says, thank you, Jason, these flowers are beautiful. And I say, you're welcome. It was my delight to bring you those flowers. It changes everything about the way that I'm bringing them It changes everything about the gift and it changes everything about the way that she receives them. What John is telling us when he says that the commandments are not burdensome is saying that we do not, 
We do not come as a duty. We do not follow those commands as a duty, but instead they become a delight in us because the Spirit is at work in our life and our heart has been tuned away from our own desires and now turned towards his desires and he gives us the desires of his heart begin to reside in our heart. And so now... Now we no longer follow in duty, but we follow in delight. We, we love him and he is at work in us. And so we, we long to serve and obey and honor because of the love that he is perfecting in us. His commandments are a delight and not a duty. But I think he's also saying here something else. His commandments are not burdensome, I think John is saying that because, and we know they are, they are burdensome. There are times that they are burdensome. I think he's reminding the readers, I think he's reminding us that there are some times that we feel the weight of the commands, we feel the pressure, we feel the overwhelmingness of the law and rule that God has given to us. We feel the overwhelmingness to be to be more and more like him and we begin to look at ourselves and see our sin and we realize that there's no hope for us to do it on our own. There's no way that we can keep the command. There's no way that we can follow the law. There's no way that we can do what God has called us to do if we rely on ourselves. And so when he says the, bur- the commandments are not burdensome, he says there is a burden. Sometimes it's so overwhelming, but he does that so that you might lean into God, that you might rely on the spirit that's at work in you. Several times, John tells us about the inclusion of Jesus' strengthening grace in us, and that is the difference. His commandments are not burdensome because the spirit is at work inside of us. So John says in chapter 5, Verse 3, his commandments are not burdensome. And then the next verse says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes in Jesus as the Son of God. He says his commandments aren't burdensome, but even more than that, we have overcome the world overcome the world. The Romans at this time, the the ruling people that would have been in this area of the world when John was writing this, the Roman people had conquered everything that had come against them. And they had begun to see themselves as overcomers. That was the word that they would have used. They were overcomers. They were equal to the gods is what they would have meant when they used that phrase. They were the grand champion. They were equal to the gods, little g. And John takes that here and he says, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. They've overcome even the overcomers, the little o. Why are his commandments not burdensome to us? Because we have overcome the world. Because we're no longer part of this worldly system because Christ is at work in us. God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And now our citizenship is in heaven 
Now we are aliens and strangers to this world. Now we have new natures. Now we are driven away from what the world holds out to us. And now we look toward the ultimate fulfillment that works in us through the Holy Spirit and is promised to us by God and is bought for us through Jesus. We are overcomers. And he continues on. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater For this is the testimony of God, that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life. This life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Jesus comes, John comes back, John comes back here to remind us of the humanity of Christ. He says that he who came by both water and by blood. Jesus who came by water. Water representing a couple of things. One is water represents the birth, the human birth that Jesus had. He comes by water. John is reminding them that Jesus Christ was born, was born as a baby, lived, lived as a child. That Jesus Christ was a human, was a man. Remember, he's refuting the idea that that Jesus maybe just showed up as an apparition and taught for a few years, but never really was a human. He's saying, no, Jesus was there. He was born. He was born. He came by water. He was born. He also, though, references the idea that commentators tell us that this water also represents and reminds us of baptism. You know that story. Jesus comes to the Jordan and John the Baptist is there and John has been baptizing and Jesus comes and Jesus says to John, I, I, I want to be baptized. And John, John says, no, there's, there's, you need to baptize me. I can't, I can't even tie your sandals, John says. But he does baptize Jesus. And for, for those of us that have been baptized, you, you know, you've been to a baptism service, you know what that represents, that, that, that we go into the water and, and, and we die to our sin and we come out and it's a reflection, it's a remembrance, it's a representation that we were dead and then we have been washed, we have been brought up and we are now clean and made new. And Jesus comes to that river and John the Baptist baptizes Jesus and Jesus' baptism is not like anybody else's baptism. Jesus did not need to have a representation that he was full of sin and needed to be cleansed and washed clean and, and brought back. Jesus, Jesus did not need 
Jesus did not need the cleansing that's represented in baptism. Jesus is perfect and holy and was from the very beginning, when he was born, completely 100% God, completely 100% man, and yet perfect in all things and in all ways. He was sinless. And yet Jesus put himself in our place and did what he's called us to do in that baptism. He put himself where man needs to be, not where God needed to be. The same is true for the blood. The blood represents his crucifixion. John points there and says, Jesus came by water. He was born. He took our place in baptism. But then he says, he took our place on the cross as well. And his blood was shed for us. I shared this quote too from John Stott last week, but it fits well here again. Stott says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. That's the glory of the gospel. I have rebelled against God. I have wanted my own way from the very beginning. I have put myself where only God deserves to be. I have attempted to sit on the throne all on my own. And God, while I was still fighting to sit on the throne, while I was still sinner, while I was way back here, God, he sent his son to come to the place where only man deserves to be, to take a punishment, to take a death. God took our place, puts himself where only man deserves to be. He took our place, represented it in baptism. He took our place on the cross. And John says, not only do we see it in the water and the blood, but there's something else that testifies about Jesus too. It's the spirit. It's this same spirit that raised Christ from the dead that lives in us. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead that lives in us. And this spirit testifies to the sonship and to the redemption that we find in Christ. God's spirit is at work in us. And that is a testimony as well about the redemption that we find through Christ. But then... John says, there is the water and the blood and there's the spirit that works inside of you, but he says, there's another testimony as well. You've seen it in Jesus. You feel it in the spirit that works inside of you, but there's another testimony that comes from God. God himself has given a testimony. What is God's testimony about his son? I want you to read it this morning. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 27. God testifies about his son really through the whole book, the whole Bible. The Old Testament points to Jesus all the way through. 
And when we get to the New Testament, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Angels come from heaven to declare the birth of the Savior. And God makes an announcement. At that baptism of Jesus, when Jesus comes out of the water, his spirit appears like a dove that lands on Jesus and says, this is my son in whom I'm pleased. And then we come to the crucifixion. And in Matthew 27, I'm going to start in verse 45. We read this about the testimony of God. Now from the sixth hour, which was noon, now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour, from noon to three. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Elamath, Thabachni, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah, and one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again and with a loud voice yielded up his spirit. Remember, this is the testimony of God, verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook. Rocks were split. Tombs were opened. Many bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection. And they went to the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and they said, this, truly this was the Son of God. If you continue to read on in 27 and 28 there, you read that they buried him in the tomb and the gigantic stone is rolled away. And the grave clothes are still there and Jesus is no longer found in the tomb, but has been raised to life. God makes a testimony and he says, this is my son. Death does not hold him. The grave doesn't hold him. This is my son. What is God's testimony? It's Jesus Christ. The propitiation the propitiation for your sin and my sin, the appeasement, the satisfaction for your sin and my sin. It's the resurrection of Jesus. John says it this way, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. John makes it pretty clear as he closes his letter. This is our hope. It's Jesus. It's only in Jesus. There's no other place for us to go. Only to Jesus. God gives us eternal life in and through Jesus. And only 
Jesus. He closes the body of his letter in verse 13. We already read it earlier, but he says it this way. I write these things so that you may believe in the name of the Son of God and that you may know that you have eternal life. You have life through Jesus. It all comes back to him. It all comes back to Jesus for John. Commentators tell us that verse 13 there is the end of the body of his letter, but there's more verses as you look ahead there. John, as I have told you all through this series, John is not a logical writer. He doesn't write from one point to the next to the next to the next, but writes in a circular fashion, remembers things that he wanted to say. And so commentators tell us that there's some postscripts at the end of the book. He leaves us just with several last thoughts that he has. But I want you to look at the very, very end. He's told us all about Jesus. Jesus is the only way. Keep your eyes and your mind there. He's he's the only way the Spirit works inside of us so that we might see and know Jesus. And then at the end, the last words that he leaves us with are little children. The grandfather of the church at this moment says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. John knows that our hearts are prone to wander, that we are prone to leave the God I love, that we all the time will fight a battle to keep our eyes on Jesus, that we over and over will do that because we are prone to look to lesser things. We are prone to take our eyes off the creator and to look at creation and to worship that instead of him. And so John's final words are, keep yourselves from idols. Set your eyes on Jesus. Don't look anywhere else. He is the only one. He is the only way. He is the only hope. It's, you, you'll want to. You'll have a desire to. You will long to. You will turn to other things. But look only to Jesus. Look only to Jesus. He is the only one. The worship team is going to come. They're going to help us this morning as we close. It's all about Jesus for John. It's all about Jesus. And while we'll turn to other things and look other places, it says, remember, Jesus took your place. The water, the blood, the spirit works inside of us to know him. And God himself testified that Jesus Christ is the only way. What's God's testimony? Jesus Christ, his one and only son, came so that you and I might be rescued. So that we might know hope. So that we might have our sins forgiven. And so that we might rest in him. Stand with me this morning as we sing. Who breaks the power of sin and darkness?
John says it this way, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. God, I'm grateful this morning that you have made a way for us through your son. And for those who rest in him and trust in him that he 
took their place and their punishment for those of us who look to Jesus, God, you have promised eternal life. And so we rest and rejoice in that together today. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for coming this morning.